this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. This is the basis of the sermon at First Free Methodist Church on December 24, 2023. It's part of our series called Extraordinary Life, which explores how God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. Let's first hear the text itself from Luke chapter 2, probably one of the most familiar texts in the entire Bible. We'll begin at verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the field, keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is well pleased. When the angel had departed from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. When they had seen him, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed about the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Of course, this passage from Luke's Gospel is the familiar Christmas story. And uh, the story of Jesus' birth is recorded kind of in a historical narrative, not only in the Gospel of Luke, but also in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Mark doesn't really include much of a birth narrative of Jesus' life, and the Gospel of John includes one, but it is uh, very, very different. It's theological in nature rather than uh, focused on the historical account of Jesus' birth. Now, at verse 8, we're dropped a bit into the middle of this story because Mary and Joseph have already arrived in Bethlehem. That's what preceded uh, uh, verse 8 at the beginning of chapter 2. But we turn more directly to what happens with the shepherds who were out watching their flocks. And so I'd like to talk about the shepherd's story in two parts. First, let's take a look at the shepherd's vision in verses 8 to 14. And then let's take a closer look at the shepherd's visitation in verses 15 through 20. So if we start at the beginning of this story, at least with the shepherds in verse 8, we find that Mary and Joseph have already made the trek to Bethlehem to be registered for this census that was required by Caesar Augustus. There's a lot of controversy and 
uh, amongst historians about the nature of the census because the time at which one would expect the census to happen, there's not a lot of evidence that Caesar Augustus had ordered a census at this time. Nonetheless, Joseph has gone to Bethlehem to be a part of some kind of census or counting, however it came to be. Now, this is Joseph's hometown. It's his ancestral home. Now, Joseph lives in Nazareth, where Mary has been living. But Joseph is a descendant of the house of David. And David, of course, has his home uh, from a historical perspective in the city of Bethlehem. So Bethlehem, since it's David's hometown, King David's hometown, and it is now Joseph's. And so the, the notion of the Davidic lineage coming from Joseph that we read about in Matthew's gospel here in this story in Luke and also in Matthew's gospel finds a, a unique form of fulfillment with Jesus himself being born in the same town in which King David was born so many centuries earlier. The part of the story not read here is about uh, the innkeeper that has taken them into his own home. Now, when we read the stories, uh, oftentimes as children, we remember they went to go to the inn and there was no room. And so the story that's often told is they, uh, Mary and Joseph went and found a nearby barn and that's where Jesus was born. That's not entirely accurate. They probably showed up at the innkeeper's home and true, the innkeeper may have had no room in the inn, but what the innkeeper does more than likely according to Semitic culture, is he invites Mary and Joseph into his home. And so uh, they enter in, and within most homes in the ancient world, especially in these kind of agrarian cultures, uh, livestock was kept not in a separate building, but was actually kept in a separate area of the house. So there would be like a, almost like a split-level home with one level being the living residence for the family, and then there would be a lower level uh, where animals were kept right there in the house. And so when people needed milk or other things like that, they would be able to get them from the animals right there in their very own home. And this is likely where Mary and Joseph are. Now, not too far away from there are shepherds. And it says that they're watching their flocks by night. Now, what that simply means is the shepherds are taking shifts, watching over their flocks during uh, the night. That makes to ensure that no... Uh, predators come and threaten the flock, that one of them is always awake and alert. Now, shepherds would normally keep their sheep outdoors only during a certain time of the year. And that time of the year was typically March to November. And so it's during these months that the shepherds would be outside with their sheep at night. So it's the only place in the Bible where we get any grounding about when the first Christmas actually was. The first Christmas uh, believe it or not, was not December 25th. Most scholars believe it was sometime in the spring, maybe March, April, or even May. Uh, but at least knowing that the shepherds were outside, we know it had to be sometime between March and November. Now, while the shepherds are watching their flocks in this field, there's an angel that appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shines around them. And in many ways, this is designed to call to remembrance some of the stories we read in the Jewish scripture about the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of the Lord that was around the Ark of the Covenant, uh, often uh, call, sometimes called the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord, this manifestation of God's power 
uh, emanating. And that's what the shepherds encountered when the angel appeared to them. This glory of the Lord was open to them. And so as usual, with any appearance of the angel of the Lord or an appearance of God himself, which is called a theophany, uh, the people who encounter that are frightened. They're filled with fear. Uh, this is something we read again and again and again in the Bible. Whenever an angel or God appears to a person, they're filled with fear. And oftentimes God's response is, don't be afraid. And that's exactly what happens here. They're told not to be afraid by the angel who's speaking to them. Why? Why should they not be afraid? Well, the angelic messenger makes it clear that the message that is being delivered to them is not one of doom and destruction. Rather, immediately, what's the first thing the angel says? Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. That word good news, euangelion, is what it is in Greek. That's where we get our word evangelism from the same word, evangel, or the proclamation. It means gospel, is the way we often translate it into English. This is the gospel that is now being unfolded before their very eyes. And it's a gospel of great joy. And that word that Luke uses there is the word kata. Uh, we get other words from this, like gift uh, or uh, manifestations of the spirit that carries mata is also from the same root word kata. And this word really means that which causes joy. In other words, it's a thing or an event or a happening that results in a joyful moment or even a joyful outcome. So this good news is what is bringing great joy and it's for all the people. Now, the word there that Luke uses is a laos, and this word is um, kind of an, uh, it's kind of hard to understand in context. It, it could be universal of all people everywhere. It could be more specifically for the Jewish people. It's hard to tell by the word usage here. But what is clear is that this proclamation is for more than just the shepherds. This is a proclamation that is coming from these angels for a great, great thing that's happening. But what's the substance of the news itself? Well, the substance, it says, the angel says, is that there is uh, today in the city of David, this is Bethlehem, that there's been born for them a savior. And so the proclamation is clear that this is a, a messianic moment. And if it wasn't clear enough, the angel goes on to say, who is Christ the Lord? The word Christ means anointed one. Uh, which is in Hebrew is a Messiah, that the Messiah, the Lord, has been born. Uh, this word combination of Christ the Lord is unique uh, to the Gospel of Luke. He uses it several times throughout his Gospel, and even in the proclamation we find of the Apostle Paul and others in the book of Acts. It's a formulation that helps us understand the kind of the place and the very nature of who Christ is as the anointed one. He's not just uh, the Messiah of Israel. He is the Lord of all things. So it's kind of a combination of words. It's almost a, um, putting together this notion of the Jewish concept of Messiah with a Roman concept of Lord. It goes beyond that because there's even a, a kind of clear historical references during the time of Caesar Augustus that he was called the anointed one and the Lord as well. So this is kind of Luke's way of pointing to Jesus as the true Christ the Lord and perhaps Caesar as an imposter. Well, how will the shepherds know that this is Christ the Lord? And the angel goes on to tell them, he says, this will be a sign for you. 
that you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. This is an unexpected way, one in which one would find the Messiah, who is the Savior of Israel. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily find them wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. You'd expect something a little bit more stately than that. And the sign of Jesus's humble birth is designed to help the shepherds understand that even though what they're seeing with their eyes may not look like a Messiah, it is the Messiah. Then in verse 14, uh, 13 and 14, the vision expands. It says, then suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels. So now hundreds of angels appear and they're all praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. This is their song of praise. It's listed, lifted from the Psalms in some way. And then goes on to say, and on earth, peace among people with whom he is well pleased. This is one of the most misquoted passages of scripture in the Christmas story, because oftentimes it's translated in a, a more traditional sort of way where it sounds like peace on earth to all people. And it, that's not what it says in the text. It says, and on earth, peace among people with whom he is pleased. So this peace comes from God. But there's a condition to this experience. There's a condition to experiencing that peace, which may be a little unsettling to us given the traditional way we often read verse 14. It really opens up a key passageway for us, and it's the first of two, is that we have to look for the big messages in unlikely places. You know, shepherds were probably, well, I would say the least likely candidates to receive this kind of news. In the ancient world, shepherds were considered somewhat shady characters. They were unreliable. They were transient. Even during a trial, the testimony of a shepherd was not to be accepted. They were really kind of on the margins and outcast from the mainstream of society. And so to bring an announcement like this to shepherds is, well, unusual. So the announcement of this birth doesn't come to religious leaders of the day, nor does it come to civil leaders. It comes to, in some ways, the most unreliable people who are not to be trusted. So there's a value conveyed here that God does not always speak through the expected voice. We have to be careful to listen to the voices that are unfamiliar or even in some ways to us unreliable because God may be moving in those moments. This great announcement of all time is given to those most unlikely to receive it. So we should be careful when God is speaking and moving and working. If we're looking for the suspects we think who would normally deliver that message, we may not hear it because we're not paying attention to some of the unlikely ways in which God might be speaking. This text concludes in verses 15 to 20 with the, the shepherds now making a pivot. It says in verse 15, when the angel had departed from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, in other words, they deliberated together and they decide to go see exactly what's happened. So they knew the message that the angel had given them and they knew who they were looking for because the angel had given them a sign looking for the one who's wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. So even though they would have known that receiving such a message was unusual for them, they waste no time. They quickly go to Bethlehem, 
Well, we don't know how far away Bethlehem was from where they were. If you were to go to the Holy Land today, uh, any any tour in the Holy Land in Bethlehem will drive you by the shepherd's field, which is, um, according to tradition, the field where those shepherds were with their sheep when the angel spoke to them. We don't know if that's the actual location or not. There's a church built in memory of that occasion in that very same field, but we don't know if that's actually the place or not. We do know that today, just like in the ancient world, Bethlehem is about five or six miles down the road, south of the city of Jerusalem. It's very close by to Jerusalem. And so wherever the shepherds were, they arrived there. And it says in the text that they found Mary and Joseph with Jesus in a manger. Uh, It basically means he was in the feeding trough. And so sometimes when we do a, a, a crash or a scene of the manger, we have Jesus kind of in a little tiny wooden box. Um, while that may be the case, it's more likely than not that in that lowered part of the house, there was a, a, a small trench dug out, and it's in that trench where the, the hay was laid for the animals to feed on, and it's quite likely that's uh, the place maybe where Jesus was laid. But it is nonetheless a confirmation of what the angels had said. The place and setting are not coincidental. They find Jesus exactly the way the angel described he would be. So the shepherds are are purposeful. I mean, after all, you know, look at who's there. (laughs) The, The shepherds are there, Mary and Joseph, perhaps the innkeeper is there. They come knowing exactly what they're looking for. And it's important to take note that the message is given to them by the angels, but now it's retransmitted. This is a wonderful part of this Christmas story, that the shepherds, as unreliable as they were regarded in the ancient world, they accurately recount as a testimony what the angels said to them, and they recount the story to Mary and Joseph. And they even leave, when we read the final verse of the passage of Scripture, that they went back glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. So they, they've gone from being unreliable to reliable. They've, they've gone from being ill-regarded to being the sole voice of what God has done. See, this is the nature of the gospel. It naturally moves from one person to another. It's not forced. It's not coerced. The shepherds show up in enthusiasm looking for this child that's been born. They find him, and as soon as they find him, they convey the message that the angel had given to them. Now, this message uh, that they delivered to Mary and Joseph, we don't know who else was there. All it tells us in the story is that Mary treasured all these things. And they told the story that it says in verse 18 that all who heard it were amazed about the things which were told them by the shepherds. So we don't know who all was there, but probably more people than Mary and even just Joseph. There could have been others. They were amazed about this vision that was given to the shepherds. Notice it wasn't given to them, that the the angel and the heavenly host don't appear to Mary and Joseph. They appear to shepherds. And so when Mary hears the story, It says that she treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. So when it says treasure these things, that means she simply held them. Um, Treasure it is maybe not the best way to translate this particular word. It, It simply means that she received it and held it. But then the next part makes it clear how she held them, pondering them in her heart. 
And that's a, a, a way of, of communicating the, the story the way Luke writes it to help us understand that Mary didn't quite understand at the time what all this meant. She's pondering or even wondering or considering what all these things could mean. And so even though Mary receives them, thankfully, there's a sense that she doesn't really know how to hold this thing yet. So this verse helps us understand that uh, in some ways, as many scholars suspect, that Mary herself may have shared this story with Luke so he could write it down. So another, imagine almost Mary looking back on this moment in her life, reflecting on it, saying to Luke, I didn't know what this meant at the time, but I knew later what it meant. So note the shepherds when they return. It says they're glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. This is the perfect example of Christian witness. It's not contrived. It's grounded in their experience. They have this moment with the angelic host that appear before them. They go find Mary and Joseph and retransmit the story, and they leave filled with the sense of glorifying and praising God for what's happened. It's it's deeply grounded in their experience. It's not an ideology. It's a it's a way in which their lives have been touched by this. That opens a final key passageway for us. That the sharing of our stories brings encouragement, not always explanation. I just love the text where we hear that Mary treasured all these things and pondered them. There's almost like a mysterious sense about what's going on in the story. There's this recognition that although they recognize something significant, miraculous, and cosmic has happened, they don't really know what it means yet. So her understanding of what happens doesn't change how she was amazed by what has happened. She doesn't need to understand it in order to be amazed by it. I mean, imagine this story in Luke's gospel if the shepherds had not made their appearance that the angel appeared, they saw the heavenly host, the voices from heaven, and the shepherds went about their business. Imagine what the story would have been like. Mary and Joseph would have been the lesser for it. You see, we tell stories not to necessarily explain things or to solve things. Sometimes and many times, to be honest, we tell them to encourage one another so that we can sit back and be amazed at God's work, even though we may not fully understand it. And if we're not telling these stories, perhaps, perhaps we've yet to sense and know God's work more fully in our lives. Because the telling of this story by the shepherds is natural. It brings glory to God. The shepherds did not have their social position changed. They still left the room, shepherds. The same holds true for us. We need to tell our own stories of Jesus, our experiences of him, not to necessarily understand them ourselves or to force other people to understand them, but simply to convey the experience. We're not even out to impress other people by telling our story. Our story is designed to encourage others and we need to learn how to tell it well. These are the ways we mutually encourage one another and we invite people around us, especially those who don't know the Lord, to do in some ways just like Mary, to treasure those things in their heart and to wonder or ponder what they might mean. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit my website, revcraig.com. 
click on news in the upper right corner and then the drop down menu you'll see the word podcast and click on that and then you'll see all the episodes of my podcast and click on this week's episode and leave a comment. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website at ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.